It took a lot of investigating to get the facts in the George Washington Bridge scandal that started at the New York and New Jersey Port Authority and eventually led all the way to the office of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And even after the facts were brought to light, officials still remain tight-lipped. And most recently, where were you employed? Uh, on the advice of my counsel, I respectfully assert my right to remain silent under the United States and New Jersey constitutions. Audible groans. That was the reaction of David Wildstein. It would be the first of many Fifth Amendment pleas by the former Port Authority official as he testified at a hearing in January of this year. Can you imagine trying to get a story involving that guy? Well, Sean Boebert did, and he proposed that it was powers outside of the Port Authority that caused the lane closings, which would eventually lead to multiple resignations in the agency and a federal investigation. He is one of the many journalists we'll hear coming up on this episode. This week's theme is true believers, who they are, where to find them, and how to get them to talk. I'm George Varney, and you're listening to the IRE radio podcast, IRE, with you on your beat for over 30 years. On today's episode, IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins talks with reporter Sean Boberg, the northern New Jersey reporter who broke the George Washington Bridge scandal earlier this year. Later, we'll hear from Corey Johnson, a journalist at the Center for Investigative Reporting, who will explain how to find agency insiders willing to lead you to information you need. So the true believers are in every agency, and, and, and I can't tell you how many times I have tracked one of these people down, and they said, man, I was wondering when a reporter was going to come. The true believer in Michael Isikoff's story was under investigation by the FBI during the early days of the NSA wiretapping scandal, which made contact difficult. I uh, called his house, uh, and um, his wife answered the phone. I explained who it was, uh, and um, she said, don't ever call this house again, and she hung up the phone, and that was that. All that and more coming up next on the IRE Radio Podcast. Sean Boberg is a reporter for the New Jersey newspaper The Record. His reporting on the George Washington Bridge scandal earlier this year won the prestigious Polk Award in the state reporting category. Boberg's article taking you behind his story will appear in the upcoming IRE Journal. IRE's Sarah Hutchins talked with him about how he used his knowledge of the Port Authority's power structure to find sources. So let's talk about the bridge scandal. What was the sourcing like on that? You wrote in the journal article that, you know, having that base foundation covering the beat day in and day out was what led to that story. Uh, but what was it like when it came time to finally start digging into that that issue? Well, I would say one of the crucial pieces of, of information that I had um, came from previous reporting was, again, knowing the power structure and who calls the shots within the Port Authority. And that led me to someone named David Wildstein, who, um, you know, I had a decent relationship with at that time, actually. But um, but I knew what drove him. He was sort of a, this political animal. Um, and so when there were rumors about, you know, political retribution, I, I thought about him immediately um, and, and started digging in that direction. Um, called sources within the Port Authority, was told that, there was something to this that David Wildstein was involved. Approving that was a different matter, but what it did was provide a level of assurance that I was on a fool's errand when I started filing uh, document requests. The Port Authority was, you know, largely controlled by David Wildstein. 
time. And um, so I didn't get much in the way of, you know, documents that were sort of requested in the normal channels. Uh, but again, it did give, give me some assurance that in, in, in digging in other places, like in the town of Fort Lee, where this mysterious lane closure uh, traffic jam happened, that I, that I would find something. And I did. In the journal article that's going to come out in a couple weeks, you wrote that sources beget sources, and I thought that was an interesting point, and I was hoping you could kind of expand on what you mean by that. Sure. Um, I guess the, the, the broader point there is that, um, and my editor told me this early on, is uh, you have to, on a beat like this, establish yourself as um, a voice that people recognize. Um, how do you do that? You get sources. And when you write more stories that peel back you know, the layers of secrecy and expose things, what happens is more whistleblowers who are following the coverage know your name. And so when they get that call, they say, oh, yeah, I, I know you. I know your work. And in some cases, it's not me reaching out. It's, um, you know, it's people within the agency who who have seen what they perceive to be an injustice or you know, bad policy decisions calling me and saying, well, you know, you expose this other thing. Um, I've got something for you. It doesn't always pan out, but um, I found, you know, through my progression uh, covering the Port Authority that more and more, I was getting more and more people reaching out to me as I, you know, wrote stories about really what was going on behind the scenes. That was an excerpt. The full interview will be available online at IRE.org, and Sean Boberg's article will appear in the spring issue of the IRE Journal. During his time at California Watch, reporter Corey Johnson was assigned a seemingly simple story evaluating California school safety as the 20th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake approached. In California, there is special legislation known as the FIELD Act that regulates school construction. It gives the state the power to halt construction if regulations aren't being met, and the law also states that violations of the act are a felony. Building schools to meet field act specifications ensures that they're as safe as possible for the students, teachers, and administrators who might be inside during an earthquake. So Johnson sent a request to the state architect's office to see how many schools in the state were not field act certified. I'm thinking I might going to get 5, 10, 20. I ended up getting 9,000 on the first list. At the time, I didn't know this then, but I found this out by getting the, the leaked documents. When I asked that question, the agency had a heart attack. And once they started searching, they found that there was over 20,000 that were unsafe. And then there was another 59,000 that they had never even looked at. And when they started looking at some of those, they looked at 100 of those and found those were problems. They just quit looking at that. They put those to the side and said, we, don't need, we can't even deal with that. Johnson knew he had something much bigger and better than an anniversary story, so he went to the state's architect's office to find out why there were 20,000 unsafe schools and no felony charges. The agency officials were surprised, unable to find within their own records documents outlining their own policies that they were failing to follow. However, Johnson knew that all agencies have archives, and on top of that, the archives should have an index to make searching the files more efficient, which would be useful because he was going to have to search the files himself. They have an index to where they jot down each year, 
people's files, what the files contained, and some of the details about it, right? So when we show up and we say, how is it that you have 20,000 projects that don't comply with the field act, and the law says every project must comply with the field act, or else there's a felony, and nobody's charged with a felony. Where's your policies? They said, after a diligent, earnest search, we were unable to find any records or policies. So then we said, let me get your index. Let me get your archival index. Because, hey, I mean, who's going to believe that an agency that's paid to enforce don't even have any enforcement policy? So maybe you guys just, you know, you just didn't see it. In, in the, and so maybe it's in some of them older boxes. As it turns out, there were about 30 boxes of documents that the agency pulled for Johnson. While the sheer volume of information may seem daunting, he used the enormous trove of records to his advantage. That was great for us because now I had an excuse to be there every day. So I said, I need an office. You need to put me right there. You need to have those boxes. Do you have any paper? Do you have any pencils in case I want to take notes? Oh, okay, let me have that there. So for every day, I was going to look at these records. At first, Johnson had free reign in the office. He could even access the agency's files in their library. But the closer Johnson got to finding out what was going on, the more restrictions he faced. So I was walking around, asking folks stuff, and sitting down and talking. And then when I started looking at the stuff that was in the library, I found all these policies, uh, this policy about inspectors, then these inspector files that had never, that were secret, but the records would have their performance and whether they were good performing or unsatisfactory. And I was like, I need a copy of this policy. So when they copied the policy, they said, oh, just so the next thing you know, they kicked me out of that room and claimed that they did, had to do remodeling and moved me outside to the elevators, right? And so I'm sitting in a room next to the elevators and they literally would have one person uh, watch me all day I was there. And they would tell the, 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 the employees, don't go out there, don't be, you know, don't be chattering. So, you know me, I'm friendly, I'm talking to old girl, I'm learning about her husband and her husband problems and, and what dates they're going on. And, we ended up getting some breaks because people got to know us as human beings doing a job versus reporters. And, and if they hadn't had them people out there watching us, they wouldn't have had a chance to bond with us. Having a reporter in the office every day brings out the people Johnson calls true believers. These people were key in providing information for the story. In every agency, there is always a contingent of true believers. People who really believe in the mission of the agency, but for whatever reason, you know, the mortgage, the child, I'm going to do a divorce, I'm just going to work my little job, I'm not going to raise no fuss, but I'm squirreling away little emails, I'm squirreling away little documents. All right. So the true believers are in every agency, and, and, and I can't tell you how many times I have tracked one of these people down and they said, man, I was wondering when a reporter was going to come.
Thomas Tam was a true believer at the Justice Department. Tam is the whistleblower who made a payphone call to the New York Times in 2004 and disclosed information about unwarranted NSA surveillance. But before he was known as Thomas Tam whistleblower, he was Thomas Tam FBI suspect, as the Bureau searched for the person responsible for the leaks. Around this time, journalist Michael Isikoff received a tip that Tam's home in Potomac was being raided by the FBI. And knowing then that there was an active, ongoing uh, FBI criminal investigation into uh, who leaked the story about the warrantless uh, wiretapping program, uh, it didn't take long for me to surmise that this FBI raid was related to that. Um, uh, I uh, called his house uh, and um, his wife answered the phone. I explained who it was, uh, and um, she said, don't ever call this house again, and she hung up the phone, and that was that. But Isikoff didn't give up. He contacted Tam's office and kept in communication through calls and emails for over a year. Isikoff suggested Tam let his side of the story be known. He was receptive to the idea, but he had lawyers. As he saw it, he did what he did out of conscience uh, rather than any uh, attempt or interest in damaging national security, uh, and began to win him over. And uh, that led to uh, him asking me to talk to his lawyers, in which I made an hour-long presentation to his lawyers in his presence uh, at a top law firm in Washington about why it was in uh, his interest to talk publicly about what he did. Uh, and um, uh, lawyers, as you know, never want to have their clients talk about anything. Um, but eventually, um, they acquiesced, not happily, but they said, if Tom wants to go on the record for you, uh, he can. Uh, we're not going to stop him. They did, and it led to a, the, the cover story I did in Newsweek a, a year and a half later after getting that initial hang-up from his wife, don't ever call this house again. While such hang-ups are frustrating, Isikoff respected the wife's wishes and focused his investigations outside the home. Naples Daily News editor Manny Garcia, who has worked for both the Miami and El Nuevo Herald for over two decades as reporter and editor, explains why that respect is not just polite, but also useful. You're in this business for the long haul, and you don't want to be seen as a hit-and-run artist. Some of the best reporters I've known, in fact, some of the best sources that we continue to have to this day at the Herald are people that we help send to prison. <laughs> Serious is a heart attack because they were treated fairly, they got their side of the story, and again, you know, you, we're doing investigative reporting. You treated them all with two things, dignity and respect in the downtime. And you're not going to forget that. For more IRE content, you can visit our website. New this month, our first video format behind the story, Kansas City broadcaster Ryan Kath pieced together a widespread real estate fraud scheme and he'll explain how he translated his document-heavy reporting into something that worked for television. We're always looking for journalists to take us behind the scenes on their latest projects. If you'd like to get involved, email web at ire.org. And while you're already on the website, why not participate a little in democracy? Voting is now open for the IRE Board of Directors election. For the first time this year, board elections involve electronic voting only, and the polls will be open for about a month. Seven of the board's 13 seats are up for election this year. Only current members can cast a ballot, but anyone can learn about the candidates. Bios are posted on our site.
And one last announcement, are you or a colleague looking for a job? Make sure to check our online job board. Some of the biggest publications in the industry advertise with IRE, and new postings come in weekly. Visit IRE.org jobs. Thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions or comments, please feel free to send an email to either web at IRE.org or my email, georgev, that's G-E-O-R-G-E-V, at IRE.org. That's it for this week. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm George Barney.